Hello and welcome to the Complete History of Science. Series 4, Episode 2 The Poverty of the Latins Perhaps the two figures who best represent the state of learning during the 11th century are Radolf and Ragimbald. Radolf worked as a teacher in a cathedral school of Liège, while his friend Ragimbald was the magister of the cathedral school in Cologne. We know of these men because of the letters they exchanged, where they asked a series of mathematical questions. What's interesting about these letters is not their insight, but how little both men knew about their subject matter. They were, for example, both thoroughly confused about the sum of the interior angles of a triangle, unaware that it should be 180 degrees. Likewise, when they examined a right-angle triangle with sides of length 1, they tried to express the hypotenuse as a ratio of two numbers, completely oblivious to the fact that this is impossible. They were, like all of their contemporaries, far behind the ancient Greeks, who had dealt with these issues over a thousand years before. However, what also stands out in their correspondence is their passionate interest in learning and their willingness to embrace new ideas. Among the various subjects that captivated their attention, one particular event evoked great enthusiasm, Radolf's acquisition of an astrolabe. Writing to his friend, he says, I would willingly send it to you in order that you might examine it, but it is my model. If you wish to know what it is, come to the festival of St. Lambert. You will not be sorry for it. We don't know if they ever met at the festival, or how Radolf acquired the object in the first place. But the significance is that this is one of the earliest mentions of the astrolabe in the medieval world. The astrolabe originated in ancient Greece, perhaps the invention of Apollonius or Hipparchus. In essence, it takes the three-dimensional celestial sphere and projects it onto a two-dimensional disc. In fact, it's composed of two main discs, the larger disc known as the mater, into which the smaller discs, called tympans, can be fitted. On the back, there was usually a sighting tube, which allowed the position of celestial bodies to be measured. The astrolabe had various functions. For example, the time could be read by sighting the elevation of the sun and rotating the discs to the correct date. Its uses, however, were not limited to this and it could be used for a whole range of purposes, for example, to find north, to work out the rising and setting of the sun and stars, or to identify any stars which were marked on the plate. The Islamic world, in particular, embraced the astrolabe as a means of calculating prayer times and the direction of Mecca. It's not surprising, then, that the introduction of the astrolabe to Europe happened through European contact with Muslims, and the man traditionally attributed to have introduced the astrolabe to Europe is Gerbert of Aurillac. Gerbert is a remarkable figure in the history of science. Born to a peasant family in rural France, he entered the local monastery, where he received an education through the monastery school. With books to study and a warm meal every day, this was a lucky break for a poor boy with a sharp intellect, and it's easy to imagine Gerbert happily living out his life in relative obscurity. However, 
Fate intervened when his monastery was visited by the Count of Barcelona, Borel II. The abbot suggested that Gerbert should travel with Borel back to Barcelona, and it was there that Gerbert would come into contact with Islamic learning. Spain had been under the control of Islamic leaders since the early 8th century, when Musa ibn Nazair crossed the Strait of Gibraltar from northern Africa. He captured Cordoba and Toledo from the Visigothic kings and set up his son, Abd al-Aziz, as the new governor of the region. Over the succeeding years, Muslim armies would continue to march north and were only finally defeated 150 kilometers south of Paris by Charles Martel, the Hammer. After this defeat, they settled for the territory they captured south of the Pyrenees, setting up their capital in Cordoba. This first generation of invaders were not men of science and learning, but nevertheless, the territory they ruled, Al-Andalus, was prosperous and tolerant. Iberia had been in a state of decline under the management of the Visigothic kings, but would flourish again under the new Muslim rulers, who brought new trade and industries to the region. This was achieved through waves of Arab immigration from the east. New arrivals settled and intermingled with the pre-existing Christian and Jewish populations. Generally speaking, these different cultures lived peacefully side by side, and aside from having to pay a non-Muslim tax, Christians and Jews were allowed to continue to worship in their own way. During the 9th century, as the translation movement reached its height in Baghdad, the inhabitants of Al-Andalus acquired a taste for learning as well, and a thriving book culture developed. It would never be a centre of translation like Baghdad, but many books flowed into the area from the east. Amongst the books which found their way to Andalusia was Discorides, the Materia Medica. This was a catalogue of medicinal plants and the medicines which could be derived from them, and had been one of the main sources used by Galen. The manuscript had arrived as a gift to the Caliph, sent by the Byzantine Emperor, Constantine VII. But initially, there was no one in the region able to translate it from Greek. So an ambassador was also sent, a monk named Nicholas, along with a Greek-speaking Arab from Sicily. Together, they translated the Materia Medica, and helped the residents identify the plants locally, leading to a great advancement of medicine in the region. Indeed, of all of the sciences, it was medicine that flourished in the early period of Arab rule. In the 10th century, a doctor, al-Zarawi, wrote a book called Kitab al-Tasrif. This was especially notable for its 13th part, which focused on surgery. Previously, Surgery had only had a minor role in the Galenic tradition, but al-Zarawi treated it with much more clarity and in much greater detail than previous authors. He describes in detail cautery, that is burning the skin or wound in order to prevent bleeding or infection. Variously, this was used to prevent the spread of lesions, strengthen organs or remove rotting matter. As a follower of Galen, he also believed that cauterization could remove coldness from the brain, curing headaches, epilepsy, or apoplexy. The procedure for cautery to cure headaches sounds especially horrifying. The surgeon placed the hot cautery on the bridge of the nose, 
between the patient's eyes. If the bone became exposed when the sizzling stopped, the procedure was said to be complete. If not, it was repeated. On a more positive note, Al-Zarawi also included more effective procedures. He described surgery to remove hemorrhoids and the treatment of cancer by excising tumours. Despite this sophistication, he also cautioned against the idea of surgery at all costs, stating that advanced cancers could not and should not be treated. Though medicine was the most well-developed science during the early Muslim period, by Gerbert's time, astronomy, imported from the East, had also reached a point of maturity. Al-Majriti, born in Madrid in the second half of the 10th century and dying in Cordoba in 1007 AD, served as the caliph's chief astrologer. In the course of this, he adapted Al-Khwarizmi's Zij, the list of celestial tables, so that they would be suitable for use at Cordoba's latitude. This tradition continued throughout the 11th century, and new observations were continuously made to increase the precision of the Zij. This culminated in the Toledan tables, made in around 1080 AD. Most of this astronomical activity took place in Muslim-controlled territory. However, by the 11th century, Christian kingdoms had begun to reform in the north of the Iberian Peninsula, and the county of Barcelona, which Gerbert visited, was at the time under the rule of the Frankish kings to the north. Nevertheless, it's clear that this area still maintained some relatively sophisticated learning, and it must have impressed Gerbert as he brought much of it back to Europe. Initially, Gerbert's goal was to study mathematics with Atto, the Bishop of Vich, and we know he must have been successful, as he had a much keener grasp of mathematics than virtually every other Latin of the time. In a later letter to his friend Adebolt, Gerbert explains why the formula for calculating the area of the triangle given by Boethius was wrong. Taking a triangle of length 7 and height 6, the traditional formula would have given an answer of 28. Gerbert demonstrated that in fact this was an overestimate and gives the true value of 21. Gerbert is also credited with the introduction of the abacus to Christendom. A form of the abacus had been known to the Romans. However, it was unwieldy and had largely fallen out of use in medieval Europe. Since then, most mathematical operations took the form of finger reckoning, an elaborate system based on contortions of the hand. The monk Bede had presented a version of this system which allowed simple computations up to 10,000. But this system was also immensely complex to learn. Jubert's abacus, on the other hand, was much simpler and allowed a user to quickly add, subtract, multiply and divide. It was based on a counting board made up of a number of columns which serve as a place value system. So the first column, for example, corresponds to the numbers 1 to 9, the next multiples of 10, then 100, and each column thereafter increases in a power of 10. The real innovation, however, was in placing counters onto the columns, which represented the digits from 1 to 9 
using Arabic numerals. This was the first time Arabic numerals had been used in Europe, and it was over 200 years before Fibonacci would describe Arabic numerals in his Liber Abaci. The advantages of Gerbert's counting board were clear, and news of it spread quickly throughout Europe. Gerbert wrote a treatise on the abacus, whose popularity is demonstrated by the fact that 35 copies of it still exist today. Gerbert returned to Europe with Count Borel and Bishop Atto, where they visited Rome. In Rome, they met Otto the Great, Holy Roman Emperor, and it seems that Gerbert impressed him, as he became the tutor to his son, the eventual Otto II. Through these connections, Gerbert gained many appointments within the church, including Abbot of Bobbio, and eventually was crowned Pope in 999 AD, an incredible end for a poor boy from southern France. However, despite this success, it's clear that Gerbert's true vocation was teaching. Gerbert integrated what he had learned in Spain into the quadrivium and would revitalise the teaching of astronomy and mathematics in Europe. One of his innovations was the armillary sphere, which was a projection of the sky onto a 3D model. It consists of a number of rings representing the great circles, the equator, the tropics and the ecliptic, which are themselves suspended in a base and allowed to rotate. In addition, constellations of the zodiac are marked along the ecliptic, together with a calendar. Its uses are clearly similar to the astrolabe. By setting the sphere to a particular degree of longitude, the rising and setting of the sun and zodiac for a given date can be deduced. However, the advantage that the armillary sphere has over the astrolabe is that it can serve as a much better visual aid in teaching. This was certainly how Gerbert used it. Much like how the counting board served as a useful representation of the place system in arithmetic, the armillary sphere helped students visualise complex astronomical models. Gerbert, of course, didn't invent the armillary sphere, or for that matter, the counting board, or Arabic numerals, or the astrolabe. However, by introducing these objects to Europe, he made real innovations in teaching. His method spread, and his legacy is that he centred the mathematics of the quadrivium in classrooms across the continent. More broadly, Gerbert's importance was that he demonstrated to the rest of the continent the learning which existed south of the Pyrenees. The Latins would soon have to confront the fact that not only were they far behind the ancient Greeks in learning, but also contemporary Muslims to the east and in Spain. To their credit, rather than deny this or close themselves off, the Latins embraced these new ideas. A huge new translation program got underway, translating all of the Arabic texts into Latin, which would in time reinvigorate the intellectual life of Europe during the 12th and 13th centuries. We'll delve into this next time, but for today, thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who's been recommending the show or rating it on your favourite podcast app. Until next time, goodbye.